everybody, and welcome back for another episode of Mangum Reads. We have soldiered through the whole of the Forward Collection and have now reached the end with, well, the decorated award winner to wrap things off, N.K. Jameson with her story, Emergency Skin. N.K. Jameson, who has now, I believe, won the Hugo four times, including for this novella, I believe it was this time, or novelette, whatever the Hugo wants to call the award. I think it's a novelette. Yeah, and I'm clear with the difference between novella and novelette, and Googling was not very helpful because it defined it as a short novel, typically one that is light and romantic or sentimental in character. And mm, I'm not sure I'd go for that. BJ, the difference between a novella and a novelette is that one has gravitas and one is cute. Okay, which, which one is, is which? Cute? <laughs> <laughs> Anything that, with I, I et on novel. the end is cute. Novella has a, a sort of Italian flair to it. Uh, are, are you going to stick with that? Yes. Toilet? Well, if you do it in French, it's cuter. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think this was your listen here, you little shit moment. <laughs> now, the, the distinction here is when the et works when it's being added to an existing word you already know. Toil? But the toil isn't the op. There isn't like a cute version of a toil that is now a toilette. <laughs> That's not that's not the thing. You're, it's now a new object at that point, so it doesn't work. Also, it doesn't have the double no. T in it, so obviously it's not aesthetically as pleasing. You are just giving BJ and the Thesaurus more options <laughs> to mess with this right now. But Sarah, I will agree with your interpretation. In my mind, I pictured novelette being a, no a novella with a bow on it. Perfect. Mm -hmm. But by way of introductions, <laughs> I am the guy that does the intros to these episodes because nobody else wants to. Spencer and joining me. The people that actually do the presenting, BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? Thoroughly enjoying derailing your intros before you get a chance to introduce any of us, Spencer. Yes. Massively <laughs> improved as a result. Um, we are always excited to uh, have your comments sandwiched between ours. <sighs> In joke. Won't go into that. Too painful. Um, with respect to this story, as we've already revealed, this is the most... This is the award winner of this particular collection. Oddly enough, not the best reviewed when it comes to the uh, at least Amazon or Goodreads reviews mm -hmm. compared to it, some of its competition, but it's at least professionally well-regarded. But before we get into the meat of our own opinions, Sarah, you have been going through the machine learning exercise of drink pairings for each of these, nove each of these novellas or novelettes, whatever you want to call them. What did the AI tell us to drink this time yeah. or tell you to drink this time? <laughs> so our machine overlords have told us um, although you have bucked that, Spencer, despite our best efforts, um, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna say why once we get to the ingredient list for this one. So I'm a, also a little confused on the um, pronunciation of this drink name. I think it's. I mean, it looks like it is Roll Fark, which is not appetizing. <laughs> um, but I am imagining going back to the French version of things. I am imagining little accent aigus over um, both of the e's in this, and I think it's a Rolle Farquet. Um, sure, whatever makes it more appetizing. Well, I'm, and that's it's interesting that you say that because I have been uh, since our last episode dreading this cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> what are the ingre What what ingredients did your machine overlord decide would be the perfect mix for the human for the evening? Oh, uh, so the the biggest problem with this cocktail for me is that it is it is. Um, a rum-based cocktail, which, uh, mm -hmm. as I have talked about before, is not not really my drink of choice. Um, but it is an ounce and a half of a sort of spiced rum, 
a half an ounce of a particular type of vermouth that I couldn't find. I, I was unsure if this was like a brand or a particular flavor. It's called a Carpana and Antica Formula Vermouth. I used a red vermouth. Um, a So it's a half an ounce of the vermouth, a half an ounce of a coconut liqueur, a half an ounce of mezcal, and two dashes of Angostura bitters. I had to, because of the liquor store situation in North Carolina, which is not always <laughs> the, the best place to find all of the ingredients you want, um, I had to make a few little adjustments. I could not find for the life of me a coconut liqueur. I was on the verge of buying Malibu, which was oh, deeply upsetting no. to me. No, the <laughs> end of your rope. Um, but instead, what I decided to do, I bought a, a local coconut rum. It is not a spiced rum, hmm. but I do have what I substituted in instead was a little bit of um, that kind of spiced simple syrup that I've been using. Um, so that gave me the spice as well as a little bit of the sweetness that would have been in the, the liqueur. So I have a coconut rum, um, a, a spiced simple syrup. Like I said, I used just a kind of generic red vermouth. Um, and then I bought a really good mezcal to put in it because that is the one saving grace of this cocktail for me. And with much trepidation, I mixed it up tonight. And I have to say, I don't hate it. It is, it is hmm. not bad. It's... Hmm. What I It's better than expected. Yeah. And what I think has happened is that the mezcal is so is so smoky and has such a particular flavor that it mellows the rum flavor for me and makes that mm. a little bit more bearable. Um it's not my favorite cocktail, but I would I would easily drink this in a pinch. Um which I imagine will happen when these are the only ingredients that are left in my liquor cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to ask just to see if whether this trend continues. Is it the exact same color as every other drink that the AI has had you drink? I have, yeah, that's true. I have not been able to send you all a picture yet. This is a lighter brown, less red than, but it is like it is absolutely in the same family of the well, other. Be, between between the the bitters and you know certain other ingredients, it's always going to trend towards that color. A lot of these have had. A lot of these have had red vermouth in them, um, which will always also kind of change mm -hmm. it. I will say that like w the spiced simple syrup that I have is like a very brown as well. Um, mm. So I think I think the only one that has not been brown thus far was the very first one. Oh, that one was real red because it had Ooh, Campari yeah. in it. Yeah. Yes. These have all turned out various shades of either almost like a. Um, grapefruit red or a very traditional brown. Yes. It's been with a pretty similar vein for all of them. Yes, so I am actually very excited um, for us to get to our next suite of stories where I feel like gin and tonics might be on on the table. I want a nice, like, <laughs> clear drink. <laughs> oh, do, doing Going through mysteries, we need you need to start with various forms of gin and tonics. Yes. It would just be appropriate. Um, but we will, I think we will get to that discussion a little bit later. Anyway, I am, I am pleasantly surprised by this cocktail, as you would have been, Spencer, if you were not so disappointing. Ow. Okay. Ow. But I, I went into the store, I looked up the shelf, and my options were like a half gallon of mezcal and a whole mess of coconut liqueur. And my liquor shelf is currently 
My liquor shelf is like four times the size of my cereal shelf, and I'm a guy that doesn't really drink. So adding to that just seems to be inviting further stuff. Like you said, the various odds and ends that you accumulate when you make all these cocktails, and you regularly make them for the purpose of our entertainment every week, is still impressive. Me, it's just clutter. <laughs> I, am, I am, I will say, storing all of my leftovers at my parents' house, so it is not like, in my life of sex every day. <laughs> In, ter- in terms of uh, while you enjoy your drink, I'm curious to ask, did the internet denizens like this story as much as the critics did? Well, I, I think the answer is yes and no. Yes and no. Um, there <laughs> are, I would say that there are as expected. It, this is a, still a well-rated story, but that is not mm-hmm. what we care about here in this segment. Um, and I honestly don't have any of these reviews that I specifically want to read out loud um, because they all got very tiring um, and claimed that the story was sort of leftist propaganda and that every time any sort of society like the one we are going to talk about being left on earth has actually come to fruition. It has uh, resulted in like bread lines and the deaths of millions of people. Um, it was exhausting to read these reviews mm. and I'm not like overly interested mm-hmm. in parsing out individual ones. I would just like to say that for all of the people whose, as we discussed off pod BJ, avatars seem to be predominantly white in, in the Amazon reviews, predominantly male. Um, all of the people who are complaining about Disermonizing screeds against capitalism and white people and um, extolling sort of communist societies. I will bet all of the money I own that if you asked each and every one of these people who have written this type of review if they like Ayn Rand, they would say yes. Uh, one of them even mentioned her. Really? So, yeah, um, that was a thing. All right, well, then I feel justified in this take. Um, I'm very much so. Very comfortable in saying this. uh, When we were discussing this before we started recording, you guys pointed out something I never really realized before, but yeah, the majority of the Amazon reviews are guys and the majority of the Goodreads reviews are women. I had never really picked up on that distinction before. It is is really interesting. And I will say, like, as a white woman, I rate things on Goodreads and never rate them on Amazon. Just playing into their hands. I suppose. Well, getting in... (laughs) Unless we have anything further to add with respect to the internet's reviews of these stories, um, let's get into our own opinions. Uh, and to start things off, as we so often do, I'm curious about each of your two-sentence, ten-word summary. BJ, what did you think of N.K. Jameson's latest outing? It was fun. Um, I I think we've all consumed the um, audio version as well as the written version, mm-hmm. and I think um, I ended up liking it better but that might have been just the order in which i consumed it so i listened to the audiobook first and then read it later um just to go through it again slightly different experience um the the sum total is interestingly enough this was my favorite after i went through it the first time but i think arc edged it out after sort of rereads Mm -hmm. and i'm trying to figure out why that is okay Sarah, what'd you think? I love this. I also, like you, BJ, um, listened to the audio version first. And if you consume this story in that order, it is difficult to get Jason Isaac's reading of the story out of your head when you are reading it. Um, Although they are two very different experiences. Um, But one of the things that I really appreciated about the story and I'm excited to talk about is that like 
compared to all of our other stories that we've read, which are, I would say, remarkably, except maybe randomized, they are remarkably similar in, like, tone. This one is wildly mm-hmm. different. And it was such a breath of fresh air to get somebody playing interestingly, interestingly with kind of form and voice. Well, I, so I would say the last conversation was at least different in terms of voice and to a, to a certain extent form, though I do recall that basically everybody always forgets that it exists in this collection. Indeed, I had again forgotten that it existed in this collection. <laughs> really interesting to see you guys continually forget that story as we go through talking about what was that other story that we're reading this week we'd agreed about oh yeah the last conversation we've had that talk like four times our just our cloned selves continue to wake up and have to reload relearn (laughs) it's so appropriate what about you spencer I, i too like this story similar to how i've experienced nk jemison stories before i absolutely loved the intro I loved mm. the first half of the story mm-hmm. and got kind of more indifferent to it by the end of where she really draws me into a story so well. Like you said, it's with a really interesting kind of tone and way of expressing yourself, a way of structuring the story, which Jason Isaacs had so much fun with when he was narrating this mm-hmm. thing. I mean, if any, if any of the various narrators we've had have really given a story a life independent from the text and just had a ball with it, it was him. The man reads it up as such a ham and clearly has fun doing it. <clears throat> Second half, I found still interesting, but not as engaging, partly because I found it kind of blunt. Um, it was still interesting. It was still painting an interesting world, but it came across at times as being about as subtle, subtle as a sledgehammer. That was still fine. It was still well-written. It was still interesting. I think it's going to be a blast to talk about it, if nothing else. For where I would end up ranking it, it would be in the top half, but probably not number one or number two for me. Well, I will be interested in interested in our next episode to hear what edged it out for number two. It, it, it's fighting for number two with, one, with with another one or two in my mind. Okay. So getting into the actual the one. <laughs> getting into the actual story. <laughs> I think one thing we we should probably start with is um, the world itself and the founders themselves. I think those two kind of prongs paint what the picture of our story is going to be. Mm-hmm. Of where this is a story set seemingly pretty far flung into the future after, for at least from the perspective we start with, Earth has been abandoned. Not by everyone, but by a select few that escaped its overpopulation, mass, lack of sense. Mm-hmm. And so and, what I find really interesting, because you say far flung, but it, it seems very far flung when we start out. Sure. And then seem, feels like it scales back. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say. There's a level of environmental repair we see at the end of the story that suggests in my mind there must have been, at least been a significant period of time, though mm-hmm. maybe not the aeons that are kind of implied at the start. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think to your point, BJ, that like that vast difference at the beginning is more that that appears to be there at the beginning is more of a sort of cultural difference. Yeah. Um, the repair and difficulties to the actual ecosystem of the earth aside and that that um sort of cultural difference begins to kind of kaleidoscope and collapse in on itself as we go right. forward i mean from the perspective of our i can't even i can't call, i was about to call our protagonist the narrator but that's anything but true when it comes to this story our they are two <laughs> distinct entities interlocutor yeah this is the least participant 
This is the least directly interactive with the reader protagonist we've had in any of these stories, or almost anyone I've ever read, in the sense that we never directly hear from him, I suppose. Um, we only ever hear how other people are reacting to him and what he says. Yes. So the majority of the voice that we have is a kind of encoded summary of the consciousnesses of the founders, as they are called, that are placed with him as he goes on the journey to tell us, which is just Latin for Earth. Mm -hmm. um, the founders, um, I guess we can go into more the, the reveal about them as we go on, but they are the, not even descendants, they are the original people that left Earth so long in the past that by various technological means have been able to survive and endure into the present day and are sending one of their agents to Earth to harvest a resource, not clear what, to bring back to them as a necessary part of keeping their society going, reassuring him that the Earth that was is now long since dead, that it was a begrudging thing they had, to, it was a difficult thing they had to do to leave everybody else behind, but there was just no way they could bring them all, and plus they would have made the world far less fun that they were going to. And they just took the best of the best, because the that's how you... Mm -hmm. and, and some people to assist with the other things that are necessary, but, you know, pretty much just the best of the best. We, we, um, I enjoy that M.K. Jemison is kind of mocking the gratuitous Latin that we so often see in science fiction tales at this point, <laughs> and that we, we get Tellus. We also get the other classes referred to as the Mercenarii, or the Servatii, or various other... And the liter Literati, and... And the Literati, yes. This is... This is mocking the whole space Roman concept, and I'm enjoying that already. It's also it's also like b mocking the sort of American exceptionalist concept as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, that too. Um, our hero of sorts, protagonist. I don't know if we really want to refer to this guy. We never really get to meet him. Uh, is sent across the cosmos using this advanced drive. It's offering some faster than light flight to make years appear a matter of a matter of days, and is given, there is a suggestion as they put this AI in his head that he's given a pretty extensive list of reference materials, but what he's actually able to get access to is pretty damn lit. Mm -hmm. He has to seemingly specifically request each little bit as time goes on to be rejected at the will of his AI monitor. And so he's given a task to get some... Uh... Do they even really tell him at first? Or we, they don't necessarily tell us. It's to get some sample. Yeah, it's to get a sample, and basically the reward that he's been promised is a skin and mm -hmm. presumably just general outsides so that he has a very um let's say patrician appearance also so like that he is like area. just an, an autonomous entity in the world which it's unclear if mm -hmm. he is even on the the planet that he came from right and there's just this weird this intro of the story I really enjoyed, just because there's such limited information we're working with, but such an insidious, uh, both, both insidious and evil tone that's being associated with it throughout setting up these initial stages. Mm -hmm. We don't know much, but we know enough that there's a lot of things wrong. And we're going to mm -hmm. find out more as time goes on. Um, so the question is, the people that left at the 30% mark, were they all excited up until then? <laughs> and Why? Because apparently a lot of people read this for a good chunk, and I wonder if uh, they didn't know who Jameson was. And so it's not until a little bit later in the story that that you start to really get this... Um, it's a little bit heavy-handed, but this sort of overbearing sense of uh, white pride, shall we say, mm -hmm. uh, from the AI. 
it is almost to a point that the both the AI and the founders that it represents are almost cartoonishly evil in the sense that every a, a lot of the negative traits that we could associate with certain aspects of world society are all compiled into one set group is almost like a hate sink. And I, yeah. I do think that like g- going back just a second to the outrageous one star reviews that we talked about earlier, to your point, BJ, I do think that there are a couple of people who got 30% of the way through and stopped reading um, because someone seems to think that the 1% that left are women of color. <laughs> so they well, know exactly who Jameson is. <laughs> not a single word That's of that is correct. Weird. It was, I had to like check myself for a second and be like, what am I, what am I reading? What did I read? How did mm. you get that read? Particularly since we get from the very first page what the reward for our main character is going to be. Uh-huh. We get to meet the body, you know, blonde of hair, long of limb, <laughs> penis described unnecessarily all kinds of shit going down there which would kind of put you on notice this isn't a story about you know women of color fleeing earth <laughs> that would, would you, you also prefer that this go ahead I, I was gonna say would you prefer that this be a little bit more hooded shall we say maybe under a white one no. no. Sorry, Sarah, I interrupted you. No, it's fine. I was I was just going to say that this review also like seemed to think that the society was one that was like entirely composed of non-white women and had no use for men. Uh, so I'm unclear what they read or if they read any of this before or if they just saw Jemison as the author and decided to say a thing. And also read. probably read some of the other one-star reviews uh-huh. and then like went from there mm-hmm. it's like you know the cliff notes cliff notes cliff notes and it's just like mm, no you're just being racist now <laughs> you mean you can't even make it to the first page while keeping that theory going so i don't know where they were coming from it was interesting but our, our main character starts the journey to earth ai companion in tow and pretty early on the assumptions that they had about what the state of earth would be are starting to be proven wrong or at least there are details that the ai can't readily explain because it was and, expecting a kind of a blasted hellhole with no survivors. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of other things that are sci-fi touchstones um, that Jameson refers to, which I thought was sort of an interesting touch. Um, basically, the broadcasting radio waves and television sort of out into space and, you know, mm-hmm. sort of anybody could get that. And, and it's like, oh, we don't see that anymore. And... It's interesting how she distills a lot of things from uh, sci-fi that deals with centuries in advance and sort of the foibles of mankind and Mm -hmm. then sort of plays with them that it's just like, wait a minute, that's not really there anymore. Things are slightly different than we expected. Mm -hmm. What's going on here? And I Mm -hmm. think that, you know, to to tie this back to the um, story that we keep forgetting, (laughs) the last conversation, Mm -hmm. what... I really appreciate, I think, especially about the first half or two thirds of this story is the process of discovery that we get of what our kind of main character doesn't know or what our (laughs) AI in our ear doesn't know. Um, Like, I think that that is really effectively done. And it's really interesting because I think this is like the perfect contrast to the last story that we, um, well, some of us read and some of us put it down after a page um, <laughs> with Summer Frost, where instead of experiencing the world, we are sort of narrated it in a way that doesn't make sense. And here, 
we discover the world in a way that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I absolutely agree. I love the unlocking that we get of this universe at the same time as the main character, and I enjoy how much it challenges the preconceptions of the characters as we go through it, too. I enjoy the, the constant state of shock and desperate explanation the AI goes through to keep its narrative alive as long as possible to our main character. Yes. And explain things to our main character as our main character increasingly is starting to shift out of the bounds that it's comfortable with him being in. Of where the number of reference requests starts to go up, the number of questions starts to go up, the willing resistances, more and more information starting to run counter to the existing plan starts to come up. And it's a really fun process to go through. And it begins with the realization that while every assumption the founders had, or at least the founders are allowing this AI and this character to believe, is that mankind was completely eradicated by ecological collapse on Earth, in reality, it's not only still alive, it's significantly improved things compared to when the founders last left. Mm-hmm. It's even taken the effort to clear up space debris and all satellites in orbit and eliminate mass about pollution and allow the Colorado River to flow again and restore the ice caps. The Earth is in a much better state than it ever was when the founders last saw it, some whatever period in the distant past. And our AI is struggling to keep up with how this fits into its coded narrative. But they decide still to land. They have a mission at work. It's just changed a bit about how it needs to work and the need to maintain secrecy. And they decide to land, of all places, in Raleigh. We, we have a story set in the triangle. How happy are you all? I loved this so much. <laughs> it was very funny, like really, really funny to me because the first time... I listened to this, I was trying to figure out where I was going to be, and the triangle was one of the options. The second time I listened to it, I was on a road trip to the triangle, and the third time that I read it, I was in the triangle, and (laughs) it just, it got funnier um, as the approach to Raleigh uh, came about in the story. Does Jemison have any ties with North Carolina? Like, was there a reason Not other than this understand. is like a sort of um, relatively prosperous kind of second level city in the United, the third level city in the United States? <laughs> City's a stretch, okay? So. I said third level. <laughs> Fair enough. Not that her Wikipedia page reveals. Um, yeah. The fact this is set in North Carolina makes the narration all the, all the funnier to me because. Uh, Jason Isaacs plays the AI, the majority of what we hear from, in a received pronunciation British accent, as so many sci-fi villains are nowadays. Mm -hmm. But he plays all the locals with a version of a southern accent. Do you think he was going for North Carolina or just some kind of generic southern? I don't think that he has any idea what that that there are differences between North Carolina between southern accents. Yeah, I mean, like a weird hybrid of Kentucky and Texas to me. You need a really good director and people that are aware of what's going on to localize an accent. And I think there are only you know there are shows that fail miserably and and shows that succeed and books you know narrators that that fail miserably. Um, this was a, a miserable failure, but it was fine because it conveyed what it needed to. Yes. I mean- it was a, it was a, it was a failure and a success in equal measure because it wasn't trying to succeed in that way. He was going for you know good natured country bumpkin and he pulled that off well. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I so I think that I guess the choice of Raleigh kind of makes sense in that it there are 
aspects of it that are well it's below the mason dixon line mm-hmm. um but it is part of the triangle so a lot of you know it's a re- lot of yeah reasonably well educated mm-hmm. so it, it sort of it's an appropriate place for the theme of the story yes it it all it also gives a lot of opportunity for a writer in the sense that it is an established city that exists in the world, but it's one the majority of the readers would not have heard of. So it doesn't give you as many preconceptions that you can get, kind of keep your reading base at a more um, virgin playing field in terms of what you want to do with it. Yeah, I think I think okay, most so people would. We, we've all lived near it, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't say that I have a concept of what the character of Raleigh is. No, I mean, yeah, but it, you can't. You could, but, and I think for like a lot of people in at least readers in the United States, you could go even to like Chapel Hill. And they would have some sort of conception of what that means. Or Asheville, for example, for like a bigger city. But like Raleigh doesn't really have like a... Raleigh has no character. Character to it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a place. It's just it a exists. place. It's kind of in the South, but it's not really. No. And it's like a tech hub. That's all it is. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> or it's a health insurance hub. <laughs> Surrounded by a lot of more interesting places, I say from Durham. <laughs> Our two main characters, because I think it's the best way to treat them, land, and quickly find Mm -hmm. that the world is a verdant paradise Mm -hmm. in a way that our protagonist is kind of greeting with childlike wonder. list of questions starts to pour out of him. He has so many desires to learn more about this universe, while the AI just wants him to stay on task as much as possible. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that you describe it as a verdant paradise, because it's just not a hellhole. Yes, but that... Well, that gives you some indication of where our protagonist is coming from, right? Right. And it's like, the the verdant paradise is like, yes, those are trees. It probably rained recently. (laughs) And the city is on a pedestal. A marked improvement over the slave and flesh pits that he came from by comparison Mm -hmm. from what we hear about his home planet, which I don't think is ever actually named. Mm, Not that I remember, no. But I will note that the city itself is a verdant paradise in a way that Raleigh currently isn't, in the sense that it is grow- it is an ele- it is elevated and growing. It is on a very much, you know, k- keeping to N.K. Jamison's other works, living background. Yeah, this is mm-hmm. so cool. Uh, in a way that the AI is legitimately baffled by and quickly proves diff- difficult for it to understand. Yeah. Uh, um, and so this scene in particular is one of my frustrations with Jameson um, because my hope would be that if she's going to include Technobabble, it should at least be in the realm of things that make sense. Mm-hmm. And it which, doesn't. Which one, in particular, which one in particular here is setting you off? Uh, the monatomic edge of the blade uh, couldn't they do They tried to cut the leaf, yeah. And she's like, oh, all right. Like, you, you went with some Technobabble and... And I guess you could maybe ascribe it to the AI thinking that their technology is better than it actually is and describing a thing one way that it isn't actually. But it's just one of those things where it's just like, you didn't need to do that. Oh, yeah. See, I don't know. As like someone who is not, I'm never really bothered by Technobabble unless it actually, I'm never bothered by the inconsistencies in Technobabble, unless the Technobabble itself interrupts my reading experience. I absolutely Mm -hmm. ascribe moments like this to the knowledge gaps of the AI. 
Okay. And like so, that was a perfectly reasonable reading experience for me. So I, I think it might, and I'm not trying to cast any aspersions, but I think it might come down to technobabble that doesn't mean anything and technobabble that does mean something. Sure. Yeah. And so... And I will readily admit that I don't know or care about the difference in my reading that's experience. What, right. And and so that's what I figured. And so when technobabble like means something to me, I want it to either be at least relatively close to right or right or just choose... Or like I'm perfectly happy when technobabble means nothing. Mm-hmm. Well, th- this one purely means something. It's just... Not from a scientific standpoint. A monomolecular, monomolecular is a perfectly valid phrase. Yes. It's just scientifically unreasonable. Mostly. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Sh- so, anyway. That aside, that frustration <laughs> aside, I think yeah. it was an entertaining description of how the material that, that has been used to elevate this city is not something that they can... Cl- that the protagonist and its... Um, angry flying monkey can collect to bring back to the Patricians. Yeah. I, I almost interpreted that scene as being more symbolic in the sense that this level of technology, this level of growth, this direction of growth is something that they literally can't get their hands on. They literally can't understand or grasp. Mm-hmm. Yes. I almost mm-hmm. interpreted it as being a more symbolic le- rather than a literal moment. Well, I kind of both at the same time. A hundred percent agree with you. And so I would have preferred it be a vibroblade or something like that. that... <laughs> I understand. But we're, we're getting now into like the, one of the more important scenes in terms of understanding the differences between these societies. Yes. In that our character is able to adopt a bit of a platform to observe what this city is like. Mm-hmm. And we get to see the level of prejudice that kind of drives this work, that drives these two different worlds. We knew that it was the elites, quote unquote, that fled from Earth when it was in the act of collapsing, leaving behind the other people, the lesser people. But this is a moment to get to see how ingrained that is, as that as he kind of just sits and gets a chance to observe this community, we have the AI provide commentary on all those that live in it and all the ways they do not measure up to the perceived standards of the founders. Yes, and we get the, I can't believe that all of the buildings are ADA compliant because, you know, there are people that are in wheelchairs and that person... They're allowed to be there. Exactly. And, you know, that person that is old and they're consuming things that a young person could have. It's it's a key structure of society is lowering itself to accommodate these people. That everyone is having to walk a bit slower to make this person fit into the race. And that goes in all of its forms. That person is fat. That person is old. That person is ugly. Dear God, they're ugly. How can they let that happen? That person is melanistic. (sighs) Yeah, that term. Um, we, We get to see all the various levels of prejudice that have been previously pretty strongly hinted at, but are now being laid pretty bare in terms of what the philosophies the founders run on. Mm-hmm. We also have our main character learn for the first time that there is a bit of an extra function in his suit of sorts. What, 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 are, they, I don't, like, what are they called? An encounter suit or a capture suit? I don't remember. Uh, what? I don't Doesn't remember. It? It's like an exoskeleton, yeah. though. Yeah, yes. it, exactly. That on top of not, of not having skin personally, this suit has the ability to give them an emergency skin. To provide them a means of cover and subterfuge as they go among the locals. Why that feature would be in place when they thought there were no locals is not asked or answered. Um, 
yet, but it's there. And it's something that our protagonist is at first really excited about and really uncomfortable with. Because while it would be giving him the skin he's seemingly probably desired or been taught to desire his entire life, it wouldn't be the one that he's been promised. Though he's reassured that though he'll need to adopt, possibly adopt this emergency skin to blend in with the locals, the founders will of course invest the resources necessary to give him what he's promised. But before that conversation go much further, and as they're kind of debating what to do next, they are rapidly interrupted by what later turns out to be guards with a taser. And the scene rapidly transitions to a different moment in what seems to be a very low security jail cell. As we get to meet the first of our locals. Possibly just a house. It's unclear from the narration that yeah, we're getting. Like, a house. How, I mean, how, bi- how big of a community do we... Hmm? How big of a community do we imagine this to be? Because it's originally described as being like a tiny little hamlet, but we also know that there are full and proper cities that are gracing this landscape. Yeah, it's I don't, yeah. it's unclear because we are supposed I mean, to be in Raleigh. I mean, it seems like the suburbia that surrounds Raleigh. Mm-hmm. So it could be anywhere. I mean, honestly, like we're hanging out with 100% on brand for the triangle, a graduate student. I know it made me so happy. <laughs> we're a graduate student in a field that nobody really cares about. And he's able to just kind of just do his own thing with. Mm-hmm. Welcome to my world. <laughs> it's deep. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I, actually, I'm now I'm now forgetting just because the AI kept on misgendering them over and over again. Is this a he or a she that he's speaking with? She. Mm-hmm. She. That's right. Um, she says her pronouns, and I think all of the he's were. It was a thing, and also they got rid of all of the he's, and there then there were pleasurers, and mm-hmm. so finally it was wait, what's a woman? And then there was sort of a back and forth, and it's like okay, well there was this other gender that basically were just pleasurers and. Right. There, yeah. there is no concept of gender among the founders anymore because there is only the founders. That mm-hmm. they are a single-sex society in the sense that women don't serve a purpose other than to offer pleasure. That they were, to the degree that they, to what few of them accompanied the founders in the first place, have now been rendered irrelevant and reduced to what functions serve an actual purpose. And it's that functions that serve a purpose that drive the founders in a lot of ways. That as they look at this, you know, chlorophyll stand of a city, their only comment is is that. Well, that makes sense in terms of avoiding water levels, but why would they keep doing that? It seems remarkably inefficient. They have to pump resources up there. Same thing when it comes to women, is that, you know, from their perspective, well, they provide pleasure. And since we don't really need them for reproductive purposes anymore, because we now engage in cloning, that's all they really serve. And since this one is also ugly, I shall refer to it as a he, because that's all it really is <laughs> worth regarding. Dear Lord. They proceed to have a very interestingly structured conversation because, again, we can presume that our main character is speaking, but we never actually get any of his lines. We only get the now two different characters responding to them, which makes for a very interesting kind of telephone game series of conversations between the three of them. Uh, As a lot of his preconceptions about how these worlds work are now rattled to their core. As we find out that the founders, well, how can we summarize this? What What's a list of things that we rapidly learn that sh- shatter his previous beliefs about his own ruling class? Well, the, the founders were one of the groups that abandoned Earth among one, quite a number. Many. That they were the most greedy, self-absorbed, bigoted members of society. And the society was honestly better off once they had left. And, very pointedly, this he is not the first and only expedition that has come for the purpose of harvesting what we now know to be 
Um, I, I forget the actual name of it, but it's that... Uh, HeLa cells. HeLa cells, <laughs> the, nev- the never-ending cancer replicating that we use for so much research purposes and very pointedly originally came from a woman of color. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which Without her permission. Henrietta Lacks. Factors very much into... Mm-hmm. And y'all are on top of this. <laughs> factors very much into the themes of this story. Uh, and they've been continuing... The founders' agents have been continuing to harvest this resource very willingly from the locals. They've just got discs of it on hand to give to them to make them go away for a very long time in a lot of different ways. Seeming like it's every few years as part of keeping their own immortality going just a little bit longer. And amusingly, very patronizingly, it was a, well, here's the sample. Actually, how about you take a couple? Because we're not really sure you can get this back in one piece, and we'd really like you to stop landing here. It's a a lot of the graduate students asking questions like, you do have a proper storage facility, right? I mean, your (laughs) ship is shielded, right? We just want to make sure you get it this time. Um, But they have this conversation, and then the graduate student, you know, just briefs him, answers a few questions, talks about how the society has rebuilt and survived after the founders left, and then just kind of says, okay, well, my husband's calling, kind of need to go, nice talking with you, Uh, you're kind of free to walk and go back to your ship. Do you need someone to guide you? No? Okay, bye. And just leaves the protagonist (laughs) to the lonesome in the middle of the city. And the protagonist sort of wanders about and starts ignoring its uh, companion, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Um, And I assume sort of sublets an apartment slash is taken in by somebody. um, He he emergency skins himself. Yes, Yes, much to the distress of his AI. Because right. the skin, the skin by its nature suits itself to its environment, and so the skin that he gets is a person of color, probably black, based on the description. Very unsuitable yeah. to the AI's aesthetic principles. And now that uh, its ward is now in full-fledged revolt and is sing- seemingly now going native, it just kind of starts petulantly pouting in the corner as he just proceeds to now spend a lot of time kind of caring for an old man as you said in a bit of a sublet bj yeah mm-hmm. and it, well it's not clear how old old is um true it's the ai saying this it could just be a shade over 35 right right um and so the ai kind of decides that things are boring and just like goes to sleep and starts ignoring things much to the um enjoyment i would guess of the uh protagonist um and as the protagonists start spending time with this older gentleman, they get closer and sort of eventually the protagonist figures out by this old old man or older person, we're not really sure that he's old, like taking him to see sort of historical moments and museums and like really educate the protagonist about sort of what's happened in the past chunk of time, which sort of... And this was where I sort of contracted my view on what time point we are, mm-hmm. that it was a bit sooner. This wasn't like um, a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. This was sort of like a, you know, things progressed. Um, it's recorded so, history still. Right. It's recorded history. It's not, things are completely different. Um, but and, it still has to be generations, right? Right. It's generations, but like... There's still a southern drawl. They're yeah. not speaking a different language. Yeah. To, to, to offer a Broken Earth comparison, this is not the Broken Earth time frame. There are not lost cycles of human history that we only have a vague knowledge of. There was no grand collapse right. that colored the history of this planet once the founders and everybody else left. Right. 
there was probably a few very unpleasant, difficult generations, and then they soldiered through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now it's a, a kind of proud moment in their history of, yeah, a lot of people left, and they took a lot of resources, and they left us to our lonesome, and then we broke down nations, broke down individual goals, and collectively came together for the purpose of making sure that everyone would succeed and everyone would have knowledge, and they could bring that collective will together for the purpose of solving problems that previously, primarily, selfishness was interfering with. So maybe a couple uh, hundred years, because this feels like the way that we talk about the Civil War in history classes, right? Yeah, and so I would say, like, semi-apocalyptic, but we never lost cell service. Yes. (laughs) Which is exactly the way I want my apocalypse to go. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, given that there are, given that there are apparently took, uh, spent the time necessary to remove all of the uh, satellites from orbit, which I still don't really understand why they did. Perhaps cell phone service was interfered with to a certain degree, but separate question. Most of that's towers, Spencer. Most of it's towers, but they specifically said there are no more radio waves. Uh, there are no more satellites. There's a lot of aspects of technology that have apparently been banished away as part of this process of restoring the Earth. Yeah. Um, but they reassure us that it wasn't the new technology that saved them, that there were advances, there were developments, but mostly it was collective improvement and collective will that allowed this to happen. Yeah, in a shift way in thinking. In the way that the AI very much struggles to understand or explain or square with what it's coded to go to work with. Um but this is a. At the time, it just appears like this is just a. You know, I'm taking the guy. I'm taking. I'm taking the guy that knows nothing to the children's museum to give him a bit of a primer on the world. Mm-hmm. But in the next scene, our main character, having gotten to know this old man, which I'm gonna. I'm just gonna say it's an old man because I don't think the AI is entirely off in saying that. Um, particularly given the history that we here learn, is that this old man has a code on his back, which indicates that he followed a very similar path to our protagonist in the past. Yes. Mm-hmm. He is one of the agents of the founders sent here previously to harvest the HeLa cells, but stayed behind. In his case, not willingly, but it's a, a shared journey that he can now explain to our protagonist. And kind of give him the yeah. option. Mm-hmm. And yeah. give him more information that basically the founders send, the founders send numbers of, of these agents and they don't really keep track of them because it's a thing and no one really cares because they consume something that no one really wants. And they're just sort of patted on the head and sent away if, as long as they don't cause particular amounts of trouble. Yep. And the reason that you've never heard of any of them before and none of the missions have ever been reported before is that it's very much in the founder's interest that there are no known successes. There are no individuals that are elevated to their level of society. They're all just quietly killed upon arrival and the resources harvested for the next damn fool to be sent thereafter. Yep. The and it's sort of the one of those... towards the middle class, one might say. Uh, yes. Perhaps, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of one of those things like once you think about the mission and what's necessary and everything else, it's like they clearly know that Earth is in at least somewhat more advanced society than theirs and they're relying on Earth's goodwill to just continue with whatever they've set up. Because, I mean, at least currently, culturing HeLa cells is relatively straightforward, but something that you probably would do at a university with specialized facilities, not like in a nuclear wasteland. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but Um, it is also then like accompanied with a vast propaganda machine, um, mm -hmm. specifically for people of the kind of class and situation of our 
our protagonist. Yeah, it's the insidious aspect of the American dream. That mm-hmm. If you work really hard and stick exactly within the parameters that we set for you, you can be like one of us. Mm-hmm. Totally, we're not going to blow up your ship in orbit once you've given, what we, given us what, we, what we actually want. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's notable, too, that we hear from this old man that all there were numerous other people that left Earth. This was not just the founders that went off. Numerous other gr- groups engaged in this I think they even have a term for it, like the Great Escape or something like that. I don't remember what, mm-hmm. That's a World War II movie. But, so you, you know what I mean. <laughs> um, but majority of them have come back. That The vast majority of humanity has reunited on Earth and made a society. of The founders are one of the last ones that's kind of stubbornly existing out there. And it survived. That, and it survived mm-hmm. by leeching off the resources of Earth to keep their own very unsustainable process going just that little bit longer to keep that immortality as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, And Earth's very much aware of it, even keeps records about it. But in a way they don't really care about because the founders just aren't significant to them anymore. It's It's a note in some administrator's log and otherwise a commentary that, you know, we don't agree with your philosophy, but we're not gonna interfere with you doing it. We're all about individual agency, even if we think your way is monstrous and stupid and ultimately unsustainable. And it's partially because, like, ultimately, the kind of fringe nature of what they're doing has no actual effect on on Earth. Mm-hmm. Particularly since it has just no reasonable comparison anymore. Mm-hmm. It's it's two forms of humanity that have become so incredibly distinct from each other. It would be a square peg in a round hole to ever have them try to reunite in any way, anyway. Mm-hmm. As evidenced by the kind of. Um, voice of the new order coming through the AI who literally cannot compute what is yeah. going on around him. Cognitive dissonance is how the AI spends about the back half of this book. Yes. Um, um, but our protagonist has has different ideas about what he what he or she might want in the world. Yeah, he gets a bit of a fire in his belly here at this point. Upon hearing the abu- hearing and realizing the abuses of the society that he was quite a little grown in, he's not content to just simply remain in exile as apparently the vast majority of his prior compatriots have. He intends to take the Gila cells back for the explicit purpose of leading about a revolution of sorts, of showing the similar oppressed classes that make the Founders of Society possible his skin and all of its beauty. And it, it's notable here that our he's been taught all of his life to view skin as the ultimate reward, mm-hmm. as the ultimate perfection, as the ultimate bliss, to the point that the AI almost acknowledges a bit of a fault in their system that when he actually sees skin in other people, he becomes immediately enamored and only can comment on the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. And his belief I- is that upon returning to his society with his skin in tow and with the knowledge that he now has... It's something that can bring about a revolt that may finally bring the founders down. Right. And so it's sort of one of those things where it's the founders sort of have the knowledge and that they've passed down that it's white skin that matters. But everybody else, it's just they don't like it's just skin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so everybody else that's an underclass in this, you know, the founders world uh, puts skin on a pedestal but doesn't have sort of all of the um, outside influences that specifies like what skin matters. Mm-hmm. And so when the main character like sees skin and then has one of his own, he realizes the power of any skin has in that society rather than just what the uh, patricians, the literati think is powerful. Right. And 
As said, this inspires him to certain ideas about violent revolt that I find are a little bit rushed here at the end of the story. We're kind of racing here to the end, um, because as these plans get into motion, the last aspect of them is the, and this is more than a little bit symbolic, but the culling of the AI from his mind. Mm-hmm. That the strictures, the guidance, the overlord that's been coded into him so as to guide and influence his actions is now stripped from him. And our, the story ends silent because the voice of the overlord has now been stripped from us as well. Mm-hmm. So I think and, it was very interesting in a couple of ways because this is like the opposite of the last conversation in terms of like how like we uh, come into the story. And so instead of having a every so often, like we blip in for like once a week or once a month or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. we have like consistent updates in the story until the very end when it's, you know, the AI sort of checks in once a week and has a and then once a month and it's it's longer and longer and longer. And so I guess what you see or what you're telling me is abrupt sort of ends up being like the the disconnect of the AI and the main character until it's f- finer, final fruition. Uh, I can only comment on the perspective it allows me to have. <laughs> right. No, I, I completely agree that it sort of ends up feeling a bit rushed, but I, but I think that having listened to it and read it a couple of times, like it feels a lot less rushed when you take a step back and realize that time is progressing so much faster because it's only from the perspective of the AI. It's reflecting a passage of time, and it might work better for me on the screen in terms of how that's portrayed, but as I'm reading it, I can only read it at the pace it gives me, unless I, you know, consciously install an abrupt shift of time in my mind to conceptualize. Well, and this is why... You know, and we have we we talked a little bit about this at the beginning of the podcast and a little bit off pod as well. But like, I think, um, and I don't know if you specifically have commented on this, Spencer, but BJ and I have kind of both talked about the ways in which the audio version of this is more successful than the written version, um, or at least more enjoyable. And I think it's partially at least in my mind, I've been thinking about this as we've been talking because BJ, you mentioned that you weren't sure why that was the case. (laughs) But I think part of it is um, that, and this is, I'm totally fangirling over over Jemison right now, but (laughs) you know, we've talked about that this uh, series of stories in the Forward Collection was um, written and automatically going to be well-produced as audio stories, audiobooks. Right. That like that was a key part of the way to experience these stories. I think that Jemison wrote for an audiobook and not for a sort of reading experience. Yeah. As evidenced by the way that Jason Isaacs then performed this, which then right. puts us as the listener in the position of our protagonist more than any other of these stories. And if you could see me right now, I realize we're in an audio format, but I'm wildly (laughs) waving my hands around. (laughs) More than any of these other stories have understood, even if they are in first person or second person or whatever, have understood that you can be placed in an audio format in that protagonist's role in a way that is is seamless. Like the headphones in our ears of Jason Isaacs as the AI is exactly mm-hmm. the experience of the protagonist in this story. Yeah, mm-hmm. and Spencer, I think you mentioned like this would lend well to being on the screen. And 
I think that would be like a very interesting way of having this done. Um, and I think that there, there are aspects of it that are just very much like a, there, there was a lot more thought going into what was on the page that I think in the Kindle format doesn't work as well. And I think that happens with a number of books, but I think this one like could have used a copy editor to put spacing and other symbols and other things in to make passage of time more clear. I mean, it is in there, but it's just not um, not done as well as I might have expected had somebody taken a similar amount of care that went into the audiobook into the written word. One thing, I mean, there's a lot of reasons I ultimately enjoyed, I think, the audiobook more than I enjoyed the text. I agree with you, Sarah, that I think this is a very well-structured story for an audiobook. Um, just because of how the unique way it does voice, both in having the, the voice in our head, the main character that we're essentially standing in the shoes of not having an independent voice except by the other characters reacting off it, and having voices interacting directly with us that we're, you know, only hearing from other, other hand how they're responding, I think really works well in an audio setting. I think Jason Isaac also deserves a lot of credit for having a blast in terms of narrating <laughs> this and adding a lot of very unique and interesting character to the AI that I'm very curious to hear from you guys whether you perceived the AI in the same way as he portrayed it. Because I have a tendency, I think, when I read stories to kind of read it emotionally neutral, or at least more so than maybe is fair or intended, whereas Jason Isaacs gave me no opportunity to experience the AI in that way. <laughs> he reads it as pure, egotistical, pompous, petulant ham the entire way through, and it's a different read that I think works really well. But do you guys think that's what Jemison was intending for the role? I mean, I think as Sarah said, like, yes, because this was always intended to be an audiobook, basically. Um, I think that there are other reads that would be have been interesting, but have been a different flavor. Um, a lot more sinister, a lot more um, dark. Um, and, you know, we, we get a lot of comparisons to Black Mirror or because basically every single person that is reading these is clearly not old enough to know the Twilight Zone. I think that hey. either of those, and more likely the Twilight Zone, would have been a lot darker. Yeah. What I also like about this, because I agree with you, BJ, there could have been a lot of different interpretations in the kind of audio reading of this. Um, mm -hmm. But what I really like about this version, and I will, I will preface this by again saying that I listened to the audio version first, and I think that that has kind of colored my idea of how this story should be interpreted. Um, but what I like about this reading and interpretation of the story is that it captures in a way that, well, and it's hard to say because they're all by different, different authors, but it, it captures the playfulness of Jemison mm -hmm. as an author, which I think it's so. easily lost in a lot of the other yeah. discussions about her work. And I don't think we've ever talked about the playfulness of her work, but she is like clearly enjoying what she's doing and subverting our expectations on that on that level as as well and this kind of gets at a, a breezy sort of voice that she can have um yeah that i don't think I it's think talked about enough sardonic humor is like her like where she sort of really gets her good points in mm -hmm. and i think this reading was sort of part and parcel to that whereas the more sinister version i think would have 
as you say, like better benefited or better befitted a, a different author. Um, yeah. And I think that she sort of is highlighting with this reading and this interpretation the silliness and foibles of cruelty. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and it, it's uh, the audiobook helped me realize the silliness, the sardonic humor particularly the silliness um, of aspects of this story and what it's choosing to emphasize. Because one of the things I struggled with beforehand was that when I was reading this story, I had a very hard time, and I was trying to read it seriously, taking the founders seriously. Mm -hmm. Because they were a bundle of every single trait that was obviously meant to be despised. They were bigots, they were sexist, they were racist, they were selfish, they'd abandoned Earth, they'd stolen resources. They were just almost like, you know, the Captain Planet kind of villain. That was like, these are serious issues. This is serious philosophy. It's interesting commentary. How are you framing it in that light? But once it was being read, and once the humor was much more apparent, that mocking of them, that humorous bend in terms of framing them as being cartoonish villains, because they really are, made me appreciate the story a lot more, made me realize that kind of inner tone from it a lot better than I was otherwise picking up from just reading it. And I wonder to what extent, like, I don't know, (laughs) other than the... uh sort of afterward that we have read or listened to many, many times at this point. Um, I don't know what the process of producing this collection was, like how much input did the authors of the stories have in the audio production that accompanied their work? I mean, we go back to the age old question, is the author dead? Uh, Well, yes, but we are like literally in a situation where Amazon could have gone to NK Jemisin and been like, hey, this is what we're thinking about doing. Is yeah, and right. I can't imagine that they didn't. I, yeah, I, I and that's my that, point, I think. I also can't imagine that for a lot of these actors, who are really surprisingly big actors to do the narration from these things, they would not have asked for stage directions. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've heard before of J, the prep that Jason Isaacs does for his roles. Mm-hmm. I find it impossible to believe he didn't, he didn't ask for N.K. Jepsen's number to ask what kind of tone she wanted him to convey in these kind of moments. Right. And, and there's a back and forth, and there are definitely authors that clearly re- either request or work with uh, narrators, and I think that this is almost definitely the case, which makes the other choices all the more interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, for the other narrators? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're gonna do we're gonna do an award show come next episode of who we thought was the best narrator or most interesting narrator, and that's gonna be fun to debate. Um, I really want to have been a fly on the wall for some of the conversations that the narrator or the uh i guess narrator has with the author of the stories because there's had to be some really interesting conversations uh, one thing i'm curious to ask you all about is the uh, to- i think there's a bit of a tonal shift when it comes to the story over the course of it and i'm curious from, your, from y'all's perspective whether that's meant to be kind of an evolutionary or revolutionary build to our character. Because what we talked about before, at the very start of the story, it's the interaction with the world is very purposefully childlike. It's, there's, there's, a, there's a steady pace. It's, 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 a, it's a, a, a series of revelations that occur. It's a, a growth information. By the mm-hmm. end of the story, the pace is up. The story is moving, it almost feels like it's moving in a faster clip. The information is coming faster. Is that meant to in some way convey, convey the emotional response that our main character is going through or that we as a reader are going through upon learning the information that he does at the end? As I noted, the end of the story feels abrupt to me, and I think in some ways, not only is that just because we see the events more spaced out, 
but everything seems to be coming a bit faster, like even particularly the information that we revealed. And I wonder to what degree that is. I, uh, working under the assumption that it's a conscious, conscious choice on Jemison. Um, I mean, it depends what you mean by, like, revealing information. I mean, so there's a lot of information that's sort of very much condensed in a, like, accessing help menu version early on. Not that we actually get it. We just, you know, we get a sentence on it and the rest of the information is called implied to be off camera. Right. Um, so I, I think it's sort of a growth of the character that we don't get to interact with and and how able this character is to deal with a new the new situation. Because, I mean, clearly the protagonist was brought up in a society that, like, none of this made sense in. Can we reasonably view the protagonist as separate from the reader here, based on the structure of how the story is told? I mean, I think yeah, I think that they have the protagonist has experiences that the readers that the reader or listener does not have access to, um, but it's difficult because the re- the certainly the listener is in such close alignment with the protagonist's point of view that we are literally getting the auditory experience at least from the AI's perspective. Mm-hmm. It's it's to difficult the, to disentangle. To the point that often our own responses that we have as reading are the ones that the other characters are actually responding to as if they've been said. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess to a certain extent, I like some of this relates in my head to, like there are episodes of West Wing and stuff like that where there's like a military expedition that has like uh, cameras like on their helmet or whatever. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. somebody, you know, way high up is like viewing stuff through exactly watching gets to like sort of interact with their voice maybe but like mostly interacting with everything around them and that's sort of the experience that i get and you know clearly that person wearing that interface went to elementary school and high school but like it doesn't matter for that interaction and so that's sort of the like it's kind of meaningless for all of the things leading up to where we are now and mm-hmm. so I think that, to me, sort of guides the pace of the interactions with the protagonist, with the AI, and then, like, what happens in the story. So our perspective as readers or listeners of the story is actually the GoPro that is activated by the AI. Yes. Okay. That, that is a way of putting it, yes. <laughs> Another way of saying it would be like a silent protagonist in a video game interacting with the world kind of thing. Either work. Um... One thing I think it's worth responding to, just based on this being, I think, the source of a lot of the negative response, is that, Sarah B. Joe, like, like you guys pointed out, a lot of the people that rated the story poorly viewed it as being a political and philosophical tract. Um, what do we think of that read? Is it off the wall? Does it have a foundation? Where is it coming from? Because most of it, I'm, I'm scanning through the one-star reviews, and a lot of them are focused on that. Yes. I don't think it's at all off the wall, and I think it's a perfectly reasonable read, and I think that their one-star reviews indicate that they should, you know, bugger off to whatever rings of Saturn the patrician society <laughs> is in, and, you know, maybe the world will be a slightly better place. I mean, it, it's it's God. very much a a functioning society doesn't have place for bigotry, sexism, and poisoning other people's environment to progress in a reasonable fashion. And there are people that take that as affrontery. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the, the attitude that the world is a better place without them is, 
you know, a little bit of an uncomfortable truth, but, you know, I mean, we're living in Corona times that if 95% of people wore a mask, we'd mostly be okay now. And so, you know, the world would be a better place if people weren't assholes. I, I think that's a reasonable thing to say, and it's said in slightly, you know, ham-handed manner, but not I guess as, it's... I would also say not as ham-handed as some of the stuff we've read, so sure. there you go. And that's what I was going to say. It's yeah. not it. It's not that ham-handed because it's also cast in a ham-handed, humorous way, mm-hmm. and that's how it's read, and that, you know, that's sort of everything about this, and so... It's not unreasonable that it's over the top, and that's right. I, I, almost the reason I would encourage those people to go back and try the audiobook version of it, just so they can pick up the fact that yes, the the founders here are you know white men and embodying a whole lot of traits that are you know stereotypically associated with, we'll say, privileged people in America or in the Western world. Mm-hmm. But once you see that this is purposely being over the top, that this is purposely being an aspect of tongue in cheek while having the kernel of truth in there as well, though you may find it a bitter pill, it will be easier to swallow and recognize the other virtues and um, positive nature of the story. That is one of the things I think in this conversation, I have, I, I hope that this is, that this is true, but it does strike me that the people who were writing the one star reviews that we talked about at the beginning of this episode seem to have not listened to the audio version of this story. Yeah, I mean, some have. I, I, I think that as we've discussed for certain things, there is a certain group of people that tends towards certain sci-fi and fantasy, and they didn't come away from the the 70s and 80s portrayal of certain things into the modern era and you know not that there was anything wrong with some of the 70s and 80s portrayals there's some good literature there and a lot of not but go on i mean <laughs> but but i think that there are certain problems in a lot of historical sci-fi that have been worked out with the times and there are a segment of people that miss you know, the the sci-fi of the 30s through the 60s because of who it was written by and for, and that's what the one-star reviews are. And I'm okay with there being those one-star reviews, and I, you know, I guess it's better that they're reading some things than not, but... It's, it's, it's one of those things of where, if a story like this, of where the villains are just so obviously mustache-twirling villains, makes you defensive makes you feel like it's personally attacking. Take a moment and ponder why. Are we why the baddies? <laughs> what aspect of what aspect of the story has triggered a moment of defensiveness in you? What aspect of yourself are you feeling is what aspect of yourself are you feeling uncomfortable enough about that you feel you're under attack here? Because the society it's being painted painted is very much utopian, but it's the utopian kind of thing of where it's supporting everybody else around them. There's no insidiousness that's framed here it's just about allowing each person to succeed seems like a goal that our society should be standing for at least in some shape or form so why would you frame why would you frame that as in any way a bad thing just to come to terms with your own demons well not if the commies are running it spencer yeah oh the dear commies (laughs) bear in mind that even the commie even i love the the commie parable is that it's not like the commies developed in a vacuum it's not like there was just only commies operating in a circle and then they failed. Mm-hmm. It's like saying, oh, look at Cuba. It failed monstrously. Let's just leave out the fact the U.S. had a colossal embargo on it for the course of its entire history. Mm-hmm. Maybe that factored in to a certain degree. 
Yeah. I mean, I think that the what really boils down here and in other stories like this is that success isn't a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is difficult for some readers to accept it, at least as a premise in, in fiction. Mm-hmm. Well, bear in mind, it kind of runs counter to the very economic philosophy that most of our world is governed by now, that certain people certain people that are better suited and better able need to succeed over everybody else so as to boost us all up rather than everybody being supported and succeeding and offering their own unique perspective and own unique abilities capitalism doesn't want everyone to succeed it wants the vast majority of people to fail as part of collective improvement well if you have those trickle down skins spencer everything will be all right and let me reassure you that the real skins at the top those are the ones you should be aspiring for <laughs> Don't let these cast-off secondary skins in any way blind you to what you should really be working towards. But any, anything else we have to offer about the story? I think in the end, um, we all rather enjoyed it. And I'll be curious to see where it ends up ranking for y'all in, in terms of uh, our forward recap in our next episode. Uh, we have something to look forward to. And if you want to consume any uh, of our other content, uh, we have uh, a number of other podcasts on our Mangum Talks podcast channel. Um, where Spencer and Terry are going through uh, the second season of The Mandalorian. Um, and uh, recently, Terry and I did an episode of Mangled Laps, and hopefully that will become a regular uh, addition to our channel. Um, but you can find all sorts of fun content, um, including what will hopefully be released, uh, will start releasing in the next year, uh, the fourth book of Harry Potter and Pottering Around on that and all of our other stuff on our website mangumtalks.com um, and if you have any questions comments or whatever else you can click contact us in the upper right hand corner of the website um, you can also contact us on facebook and please listen to all of our things on itunes stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts it's been fun y'all as indeed we'll return to you next week with a recap and then move on to something new thereafter bye guys, bye guys. what it is is a mystery it's-